Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Lance Thurner. This week I'll be speaking with Professor Robert Folks about his new book, The Ethnobotany of Eden, Rethinking the Jungle Medicine Narrative, out by University of Chicago Press in 2018. This is an excellent and compelling assessment of the origins of our contemporary fascination with tropical cures and the occult medical wisdom of indigenous cultures. Wielding his considerable experience in the field of ethnobotany, Folks traces the long history of biopiracy through European colonialism and calls into question our ingrained assumptions about virgin nature, native knowledge, and miracle medicines. More than that, Folks argues that appropriative bioprospecting has been largely a fail, and that radical critiques of biopiracy have often partaken in the same stereotypes and assumptions about indigeneity. In this timely volume, Folks brings together a wealth of current scholarship to suggest a different grounding for responsible ethnobotanical research and intervention. I'm very pleased to be sharing with you today my interview with Robert Folks, and I hope you enjoy it. Well, okay, Professor Robert Folks, uh, welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society and um, in our show. Well, thank you very much. It's nice to be here. Well, so I'm so pleased to be talking about this book, which I've enjoyed um, immensely, and I, I really value a lot on, on a lot of levels. I mean, one, because it makes a very timely intervention, um, another level, because it brings so much wisdom in the field to this, um, to analyzing, kind of overlook, looking over the field of ethnobotany and uh, where it's gone and where it needs to go, and um because it brings together so much material that it exists in various specialist literatures, but uh, I, I've never seen it quite brought together so well. Um, can you tell a little bit about the, the origin of this project, this book project, and how you came to decide it needed to be written? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, well, I had been working um, in uh, the Atlantic forests of eastern Brazil um, on and off for some years. And I had been working on a project um, exploring um, the arrival of enslaved people during the slave trade, um, and in particular, how it was that they managed to maintain um, many of their healing traditions. Um, and I started going to different ceremonies. It's a group called the Candomblé, um, which is, uh, has, has analogs up and down uh, from the Caribbean down through South America. At any rate, um, so I was out collecting a lot of medicinal plants, and I was spending a lot of time with... Um, healers of African descent, and my pharmacopoeia that I'd collected was almost exclusively weedy plants um, and garden cultivars or really, really common second-growth species. Um, and I began to wonder whether or not the, the medicinal and healing plants that I was working with, um, whether this was really a result of sort of the status of Africans as immigrants in South America. Um, and so I uh, contacted um, a person in the region that was known to be particularly knowledgeable about the healing flora. Um, his name um, was Indio, which just means Indian, of course. And so um, we got together on a Saturday morning, and I just wanted to go out with somebody who was really knowledgeable 
and start looking at the questions. So we went walking through these neighborhoods. We started in a favela and, um, you know, he'd point out this herb and this plant over here and he went over the garden wall and said, these plants over here are used for this and this and this. And we kept walking along the trails, you know, um, were, um, you know, sprinkled with plants that he said were um, part of the healing flora. Um, we got to a second growth area. This is in the old cocoa zone. And we got to a second growth area that had been cut and burned. And he's identified a lot of medicinal species there. And, you know, finally, um, we got to some old growth forests and, and he explained what he'd said all along. He said, you know, there really aren't very many healing plants um, in old growth forests. It's mostly in disturbed areas and weedy areas and trails. And so I wondered whether I really had a very good informant at that point um, or not. Um, but this was kind of contrary to what um, at least I thought about the location of um, medicinal plants in the tropics. And so I went back to California and I got a small grant to go back and investigate it. Um, and so... I set up a couple of uh, one hectare, 100 meter by 100 meter plots in a severely disturbed area, basically a messy jungle, and a couple of um, one hectare plots in old growth forest in this Atlantic coastal forest of Brazil. And then I contacted um, three people who were known to be um, reputable healers um, in the region. And we went out and investigated and looked basically at all the useful plants in all four of these different areas identifying foods and fibers, plants used in crafts, but especially the medicinal species. And what we came back with and what I ultimately published um, was the idea that, um, at least in this particular region, um, old growth forests were simply not that important um, in terms of um, people's daily medicinal needs. That in fact, they usually just went back in the garden, they had some cultivars, they went out to the fields, they had some weeds. And so it, kind of at that point that it made me begin to question this whole idea, um, this narrative that had been sort of organically evolving um, in the West, um, the tropical forests were this super important source of potential pharmaceutical drug plants. Um, and that, of course, as a result of deforestation um, at that time, sort of connected to what we call the hamburger connection. Um, uh, that these forests and also the people who were knowledgeable about these plants um, was being lost. Um, and I began to question it, and that's where it started. And so I kind of ruminated on this. This was many years ago, and I kind of ruminated on this over the years, and I went out and did a couple of other studies looking at other dimensions of it. But anyway, that's how it started. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the things that's interesting about this book, and at least how it begins, is um, – uh, although much of the book is a critique of this idea of the, the jungle medicine narrative, um, you begin with some um, basic science that kind of supports why it is people at first look to the rainforest as being a, a site to find pharmaceuticals. Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, if you look at all of the reasons, you know, what, what kind of a habitat would you expect to find um, a large proportion of these what we call secondary compounds um, that are oftentimes bioactive in plants, and um, these are the these are the compounds that, in several instances, um, have transitioned into pharmaceutical drug plants. And so, um, if that's your objective, um, obviously the tropics have myriad myriad more species of plants than any other biome on the planet. Um, it literally goes up orders of magnitude. Um, 
for example, I have some property up in northern Oregon, um, 12 acres, and we have a total of seven species of trees on my 12 acres. Um, not exactly biodiverse. Um, and we have a one hectare plot um, near where I had been studying in eastern Brazil. Um, again, 100 meters by 100 meters that had over 400 species of trees. So um, if just biodiversity is what you're looking for, you're going to get your most bang for your buck from the tropics. But then even beyond that, there's all these other reasons why tropical plants just tend to have um, or be richer in, in these secondary compounds. Um, and uh, this has to do with the ecology of the tropics. So there's all kinds of reasons why tropical forests are the right place to look. And, and so, but when does this um, emerge in in scientific literature, but also more in popular culture in the United States and, and elsewhere, that um, that these are the pharmacopoeia of the world, and that that humanity needs to um, uh, plumb them for our our greatest medicines. Well, I think that, I mean, personally, from my perspective, and I was reading the literature, um, I think Dr. Norman Myers in the UK, who's an ecologist and environmental scientist, um, he published some really influential um, essays that really got me interested in the topic. And I think he was kind of the first person to start um, putting some of the different elements of the narrative together. Um, he talked um, first about um, the development of um, vincristine and vinblastine. Um, these two alkaloids found in the Madagascar uh, periwinkle, um, a plant that um, at the time they didn't talk about what its habitat was, which of course becomes an issue later on. But um, it's a plant that during the 1960s, uh, there was experimentation done on it to identify if it could be used as an oral treatment for diabetes, which did not pan out. But they ult ultimately discovered that it had a really, really strong effect on um, various cancers and childhood leukemia. Um, and so, uh, in, in fact, you know, the, the percentage of, of children that survived um, in the 1960s were like 5%. And um, with the introduction of this um, bioactive compound from the tropics, um, the survival rate is something like 95% now. And oncologists say it's basically a manageable disease. Um, I think most of the, the beginning of the narrative started with that. And he also talked, you know, Eli Lilly um, Corporation had the patent. Um, and so... Uh, there was uh, lots of money to be made. There was another dimension to it, um, which ultimately did get pharmaceutical com companies interested for a spell. Um, and then, of course, uh, that sort of um, naturally moved into the area of the, the crisis in the tropics. And this is just about the time in the early 1980s when we were getting um, word about, uh, especially in Central America to begin with, um, that Central America's rainforests were being chopped down ignominiously in order to produce more cattle um, to send up to the United States for the burgeoning fast food industry. So we had the real beginning of it, I think, with Norman Weyer's work. Um, and then I just think from there it caught on. Um, it, it caught on, I think, as I point out in the book in various places, because I feel like we've, you know, humanity, at least the West, has always had this, this kind of love affair with the mystery of the tropics. And so um, someone coming forth and saying we have these mysterious drug plants, you know, that could treat some of our most horrific diseases. Um, uh, I think it just I think it resonated with us. Yeah. So, you know, this this book is uh, and m most of it is a, mm -hmm. a deconstruction of this idea of the jungle medicine narrative in a, a 
a genealogy of where this idea comes from and how it dovetails with much of Western intellectual tradition and, and why it isn't quite correct and isn't quite uh, useful in uh, as we go forward. And I'm wondering why it is that, uh, you know, in, in, to begin with, that, that you think that this idea requires a critique. Uh, good question. Um, well, I think, you know, it, in many respects, the jungle medicine narrative is, is kind of an, an autobiography of my changing understanding of the Western view of tropical forests. And um, because I've been working there since the 1980s, um, when I first went, um, I had a very, very romanticized notion of what the tropics were all about. Um, I had the notion in my mind of a virgin landscape um, that was very much in need of outsiders coming in to help local people understand how to take care of their nature. Um, I had a very romanticized notion about indigenous relations um, with tropical nature. Um, I knew nothing about the sort of history of exploitation of tropical forests. I knew nothing about the questions of biopiracy. Um, and so the, the, the whole uh, evolution of the narrative, um, it, it went forth, you know, very organically. Um, it wasn't, you know, it was a, it was a strategy ultimately employed um, by the environmental community. Um, but I also worry about the idea of using environmental narratives um, to convey um, sometimes complex issues to the general public. And I think that um, particularly in, an, in the area of environmental science, where these problems tend not to be very uh, easy to identify cause and effect, they're very slow, slowly evolving. I think that we have to be very, very careful about how we construct them. Um, and in this particular instance, and in certainly other instances, um, you know, narratives um, become calcified in society. Um, they resonate, and then it's very, very hard to change them. And so then, you know, we start looking for the tropics, and we expect to find a certain thing all the time. We expect the shamans to all be men. We expect we need to save old-growth forests because, of course, that's where all the medicinal plants are, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, I simply tried to tease out what I considered to be all of the salient elements um, in this narrative and to see which ones um, were spot on and which ones were kind of gray and fuzzy and which ones just were not correct at all. Yeah. And can you give us a little overview of what, what you think, what are the key elements of the jungle medicine narrative? Absolutely. Um, well, I think I, I started off on the more, um, the, the more metaphoric um, view of the tropics, because um, to begin with, most of us don't, you know, most most Westerners don't ever get into the tropics and they do. It's, you know, a brief eco tour and where a lot of times they end up, you know, passing along the same kinds of, of misinformation as we already have. But at any rate, I, we start off by looking at the, you know, the, the virgin nature of tropical forests and what are tropical forests and um, to what degree are they a product of, of you know, natural processes, climate and soils and, you know, those kinds of speciation events and to what degree um, are they, in fact, humanized landscapes? And one of the things that um, geographers and anthropologists and biologists have discovered over the last 40 years or so is that tropical forests are very much a reflection of human actions. Um, you know, the, 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 the composition of forests, um, especially, for example, if you go into the Mayan country of the Yucatan, you know, as you get closer and closer to ancient villages, 
um, you identify that more and more of the tree species are useful and um, useful meaning that the composition of these forests was changed a thousand years ago and that even though as a westerner you walk through and it still looks like absolute pristine virgin nature in fact a lot of what you're seeing is a result of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of manipulation by human beings and so um, i move from there into the idea of um, no, you know noble forest dwellers, um, the way that we have kind of culturally constructed um, who lives in the forest and how their knowledge of the forest um, uh, is, is useful to us. Um, I try to go back and look at the earliest, earliest thoughts about people in the equatorial realm, um, what the ancients thought, and then when the colonial people arrived in Africa and Latin America, how they kind of redefined them you know, lazy, shiftless, sexual people that could be exploited. Um, and then, you know, the arrival of the Romantics, especially Alexander von Humboldt, and how he helped redefine our relationship and our views of, of indigenous people. Um, all of these kind of go through, you know, evolution of, of ideas. Um, and sometimes they come back again, and sometimes they revert. Um, I looked at the um, early bioprospecting um, during the colonial era, um, looking for kind of antecedents to the kinds of things that have been taking place beginning in the 1980s and found lots and lots of parallels. Um, kind of the one um, thing that is, is a recurring thing um, is the idea that um, indigenous folk are not sufficiently intelligent to manage their own resources and to appreciate how important they are. And so um, they are deserving of outside intervention in order to um, uh, protect these resources. And that's a theme that um, has come up um, again and again. Um, I then slipped into the idea of whether or not, um, you know, the origin of the idea of medicinal plants coming out of the forest and their transition to pharmaceuticals, it was connected to old growth forests. And the idea that these um, precious, barely, barely touched forest land, forested landscapes um, were where all of these potential pharmaceutical drugs were located, and that's, of course, why we needed to protect them. And given that little research project I'd done years before, I started exploring it more thoroughly and um, discovered, along with many, many other people, because there's been a lot of other research on, in terms of the habitats that are associated with healing floras, and discovered there's all kinds of reasons um, why old-growth forests are really um, incredibly important in terms of all kinds of ethnobotanical uses. Um, but for the most part, medicinal plants are not part of it. Medicinal plants actually do much, much better in sort of open space areas, um, less bio biodiverse areas, um, along trails and in burned over areas, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that was kind of a challenge to the idea that we needed to save the world's rainforests in, in order to save the medicinal plants. Um, I think I stated at one point in the book, you know, one could say that, in fact, cutting down the forest and burning it would, you know, dramatically enhance the number of medicinal plants. And I'm saying that, of course, tongue in cheek. But at any rate, um, the last couple of major elements, um, one that um, I think probably I would connect to the Sean Connery movie, The Medicine Man, that came out in 1992, um, but was also carried on by ethnobotanists. And that is that... Um, that these, these healing traditions are not only in the rainforest, but they are maintained by mostly male shamans. And this connection between male shamans and the mysteries of the healing properties of the forest certainly was perpetuated by, you know, the doyen of ethnobotany, Richard Evans Schultes, 
um, from Harvard. Um, and it was carried on for many, you know, a generation basically, because in the early days, almost all ethnobotanists were male and for all kinds of reasons. And this certainly includes me in the field. I was as guilty as anyone else. Um, I was not allowed to work with women, certainly in the field. And so everything I learned was from men. And so you come up with this association of, you know, indigenous male folk being sort of these uh, reservoirs of medicinal knowledge. Um, and in fact, it turns out that there are all kinds of reasons um, including ecological, um, but social, socio-cultural as well, is why why it is that women tend to actually be m- more imbued with the knowledge of the healing properties of tropical nature. Um, my last couple of uh, the elements, um, one that I found particularly important from my own perspective, um, because my own research over the years, um, for the most part, was looking at diaspora people, uh, people that had um, uh, been forcefully... Um, uh, brought to the Americas um, during the slave trade. Um, and one of the kind of axioms of bioprospecting is that you work with indigenous people. You don't work with people that at one time or another were immigrants. And in fact, one of the very, very first articles I submitted for publication, um, it was accepted ultimately, but one of the reviewers really took me to task. And he said, if he or she said that if you want to learn about the healing flora of a region, you need to work with indigenous people, you know, not the descendants of enslaved people. Um, and so uh, there's been a lot of research by people in the last 25 years looking at um, uh, people of African descent in the Americas and the tremendous amount of knowledge that they have in terms of the healing floor. So I, I use that chapter to kind of dispel the myth that we had to go off and find folks that had been in place forever. Um, and finally, the, the last uh, point um, was one that I actually went out and researched myself, and that is the, the widespread notion among ethnobotanists um, that uh, we are very, very rapidly losing um, um, our, our cognitive association with tropical nature, um, that people are abandoning um, the, the knowledge of medicinal plants and other things, but also medicinal plants seem to be particularly vulnerable to erosion. Um, and you get this from almost everybody who works in the field. And I'm, I'm the editor of a journal called Economic Botany, and um, I would say that probably half of the articles that I receive for publication at some point say, you know, and we lament the fact that uh, young people are no longer interested in medicinal plants. And so this is the last generation that's going to be able to um, have any knowledge and therefore, of course, interested in plumbing um, the indigenous knowledge about medicinal plants. We better do it quickly. Um, and so I went out and did a study in eastern Brazil um, with a Brazilian colleague to look at this question and indeed found um, that knowledge of nature was declining very, very rapidly in this community. Um, uh, the chapter in the book explores this uh, more thoroughly because it's a challenging question. Um, you know, we, we don't have longitudinal profiles going back 100 years to know what people knew in the past. And so basically we go into a community now and I identify what younger people know, what middle-aged people know, and what older people know. Um, and of course, you know, there's the inherent bias there of we assume that older people know more than younger people. Um, but having said that, um, from all the different ways that this topic has been explored, it does uh, very much appear um, that our knowledge of the healing properties of tropical nature is declining um, pretty precipitously. Anyway, those are, those are the major elements, and um, I try to tie them together in an objective way. Um, I didn't really have an axe to grind specifically, um, but I thought it would be interesting to try to tease out all the different features of it and see um, which ones um, uh, had the most veracity and which ones did not. 
Yeah. You know, one of the kind of uh, elemental features of the jungle medicine narrative, and one that is um, at least a few hundred years old, is the idea that um, indigenous knowledge of nature is a, a different kind of knowledge. It's more innate. It's less conscious. It's more of being with one with nature. It's more animal-esque. And this is an idea that one can trace pretty um, loudly with, and vocally within colonial literature, but mm. is one that continues today in which this kind of knowledge is thought to be timeless, in, in a sense. Um, and I'm wondering about, as you're looking across uh, this field and reconsidering this jungle medicine narrative in light of your own experience with weedy plants and, and, and otherwise, if this really changes our idea about what it means when when people know nature, non-Western people or or people um, you know, not non-scientific nature. Well, if you're talking about the relationship between in our perception of people in the tropics and how they have a more intimate knowledge of well, nature, that, is that but also going? the sense that what what they know isn't uh, a rational sort of knowledge of nature, but rather is something. Mm deeply innate and, and cultural. Yeah, and, and it's also, you know, and you're familiar with the colonial literature also, and this is something that I explore to a limited degree in the book. Um, you know, as as colonial authorities were out looking for these um, healing plants, and they used various sort of axioms to try to track them down, things like the doctrine of signatures, you know, identifying plants because heart-shaped leaves, you know, could cure the heart and, you know, white latex coming out of a tree indicated it was good for lactation, that sort of thing. Um, but they ultimately did hit upon the idea that indigenous folk um, were touchstones for this knowledge. Um, and um, the literature seems to, you know, both the original literature and that that's come out more recently um, does sort of suggest that that colonial authorities saw this as sort of bestial knowledge, that there was something in terms of that that great chain of being um, whereby you know there's there's more and more association with wild nature as you move from God to the angels to civilized people to uncivilized people and down to the beasts. And that because these so-called uncivilized indigenous folk live close to nature and they're surrounded by wildlife, um, there's the, the, the idea that their knowledge is not something that was acquired through intellectual experimentation and, um, you know, scientific empiricism, that it's something that they just sort of blindly inherited um, and... That's one of the important themes, certainly, as you're aware from the colonial literature, is the idea that because uh, indigenous folks um, inherited this um, not by scientific method, but by association with the wildness of nature, that somehow this isn't really intellectual property, that this is sort of brute knowledge. And since it wasn't acquired by um, intellectual action, um, it meant that basically outsiders could come in and steal it. And there wasn't um, any notion of intellectual property. And do you see that idea as something that persisted uh, as this jungle medicine narrative really develops in the 1960s and 70s? Yeah, I think that that's been around uh, forever. And um, I can tell you that um, I went back and investigated the question of, of, of when 
we started uh, in the West, certainly in the scientific community, talking about intellectual property of, of uh, indigenous folks and nature. Um, and even up and through the 1960s and 1970s, certainly field researchers have always had, you know, for, for a couple of generations, great, great respect for people in the field. Um, but at the same time, um, uh, they, I don't believe that they really consider it to be intellectual endeavor, and I don't believe they consider it to be intellectual property. Um, I ran into an article um, in the 1970s in, in our journal, Economic Botany, um, where a woman researcher sort of sort of seemed to laugh in it, say, you know, and it's so interesting, the local people here actually consider this to be something of intellectual property, when, of course, this is really, you know, a commons uh, a prop resource that any of us should mm -hmm. have access to. And so uh, one of the things that this um, jungle medicine narrative lends itself to is this this controversy over bio bio uh, prospecting and biopiracy uh, in the 80s and 90s and mm -hmm. i'm wondering a little bit about both the ways i guess the ways that the jungle medicine narrative serves both sides of that argument uh, that that this is knowledge that needs to be uh, appropriated and uh in uh, for uh, the health of humankind, um, or that it's intellectual property belonging to uh, a certain um, uh, a certain group of people that's being exploited by by Western pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a really that's a really good question and a super appropriate question. Um, as I as I try to point out in the book, the jungle medicine narrative. Um, in many respects, in the last couple of decades, has been supplanted by the biopiracy narrative, um, suggesting that um, bioprospecting for the healing floor of the tropics is just one more stage of the um, inappropriate exploitation of you know indigenous folk and their knowledge. Um, in terms of medicinal plants. Um, and looking for examples of biopiracy, um, there are almost no examples. And uh, I think that when you get into the agronomic literature in terms of, you know, um, land races of, of uh, beans and things like that, there are some good examples of people, you know, Westerners going down to Mexico, seeing some cool beans, bringing them back and trying to put a patent on them. Um, but, um, my own research and my own perception of the question of biopiracy in the area of medicinal plants is that it's really something that kind of ended during the colonial era. Um, it isn't something that has gone on for at least a generation. Um, I can't think of a single pharmaceutical drug plant that was developed in the last 70 years that was, um, as a result of um, exploitation, inappropriate exploitation of indigenous knowledge. Um, uh, I mean, part of that obviously is because it takes a long, long time to develop a drug, um, even though you identify that it has this use in the field. Um, and so in some ways, um, and I'm not trying to completely denigrate the idea of biopiracy as a narrative, um, but it's one of those things that really resonated with people. Um, I mean, big pharma is, a, is really easy to hate. Um, for all kinds of reasons. And so suggesting that indigenous folks are having their knowledge um, exploited um, by, you know, ethnobotanical errand boys sent down by big pharma to, you know, make the next great pharmaceutical discovery so they can come back and make a billion dollars off of it. It's just one of those things that really, really resonates well. Um, and 
honestly, there just aren't any examples of it. And even when there are, you know, notions of the example, um, even with Vin Christine, for example, that came from the Madagascar periwinkle, there have been, you know, dozens and there are so many articles written on biopiracy. Um, and there are suggestions that, you know, the plant originally comes from Madagascar and so that the pharmaceutical corporation that developed Vin Christine should somehow go back to Madagascar, you know, and somehow compensate the country or the people. Um, but the plant is a weed, and it's been a weed that's been scattered all over the tropical and subtropical world for at least 200 years. Um, its identification as a possible medicinal plant was made by um, a man in the Caribbean. So at any rate, what I'm saying is, is um, I, I, I think that the, the attitude towards indigenous people as, as reservoirs of this knowledge I think that it has certainly changed over the years, and every ethnobotanist that works in the field now follows a very, very clear code of ethics in terms of prior informed consent, in terms of what will happen if any drugs are ultimately developed from this. I mean, it was a good thing to go. The biopiracy uh, um, issue you know, m- made us be more diligent in the field to make sure that if there was any go- ever going to be any kind of medicinal um, development, um, that indigenous folks... Um, that that pointed us in that direction, that gave us the lead, or the community, or the country that yeah. they were ultimately going to so, benefit you know, from if it. This, if if the biopiracy narrative is is mostly at least untrue, um, has the whole jungle medicine project been largely a failure? Have have pharmaceutical monies lost you know untold millions of dollars trying to find these medicines and then never find anything? Yeah, I can't say how much they put into the research and development because that's that's way out of my area, and I know that it's incredibly expensive. Um, I can say that the that several pharmaceutical companies got very interested in the tropical realm um, because of the evolution of the jungle medicine narrative, and several um, companies um, set up agreements with uh, countries in the developing world whereby they would invest money in the protection of particular tropical forested areas. Um, in exchange for exclusive rights to um, look at um, uh, plants for possible uh, drug patenting. Um, But over the years, um, because of the uh, emergence of the biopiracy issue, um, uh, pharmaceutical companies simply lost interest and almost all of them moved away. Um, And there were almost no successes whatsoever. There is a group called the Shaman, Shaman Pharmaceutical, which has changed its name, um, and after I published the book, I did get um, comments from um, one of the leaders of that group that, in fact, they had come up with a very, very important um, medicinal plant um, that was transitioned into a pharmaceutical um, as a treatment for extreme diarrhea in HIV-AIDS patients. Um, and they also had worked with indigenous people and that um, whatever money was coming out of this development was going to be funneled in part back into the community. Um, so it really it was a it was a fair and equitable agreement, and um, to the degree that uh, pharmaceutical companies get interested again in the tropics, um, I think that it will be um, a pretty level playing field. So, you know, one of the things that um, I wonder about as when we consider this issue of biopiracy and and uh, its uh, reality and its um, its overinflation is is how effective that narrative has been for 
these indigenous communities and other groups uh, to protect either their resources or their knowledge or um, or to to get some kind of uh, reasonable compensation for the for for what uh, is of their knowledge. And so I'm wondering just a little bit about even mm-hmm. if the if the narrative isn't um, exactly correct, has it been politically uh, effective? Well, um, I can say from my own experience and from the experience of people I've talked to in the field that pretty much everyone in the developing world, Africa, Asia, and Latin America, are very, very aware of the idea that there are some possibly blockbuster medicinal plants waiting to be discovered and that they are going to churn out tons and tons of profits for somebody and they are all very, very much well aware of this. Um, um, About 15 years ago, um, a whole series of countries made it almost impossible to do any research with ethnobotany because of fear of exploitation of uh, indigenous folk, but especially, you know, super um, lucrative plants being spirited away to the U.S. or to Europe. And it's only on the last 10 years that we've been able to start doing this again. But indigenous folks are very, very clearly aware of this um, there's even in some instances, um, it's, it's hard to even, because the work that I've done has never been with about bioprospecting. I'm really much more in the spiritual healing realm. Um, but it's hard to get people to talk about it because they are, you know, either fearful that you're going to be using this knowledge, um, to, uh, to help develop a medicinal drug, um, but that they're not going to get any compensation for it. And I've noticed also when I was working many years ago in, in Borneo in, um, in Brunei Dara Salaam that indigenous folks, when we start talking about medicinal plants, they would say, oh, yeah, yeah, we know about these. And, you know, we're really interested and these are super important to us. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like their perception of the value of their knowledge has definitely changed over time. I don't think there would be you – know, to the degree there was exploitation, certainly there was during the colonial era – I think indigenous folks are pretty wise, and I mean indigenous by you know indigenous peasant or diaspora people in the tropics. They're pretty wise to the yeah. whole thing. And so, do you have a vision then of what um, what responsible ethnobotany should be doing um, in the world if it's not to mm-hmm. uh, be trying to? Uh, um, gain this knowledge for its dissemination or something like that. What is What should the project of ethnobotany be trying to do out there? Well, that is a good question. I think that most of the people at this point that work with um, uh, the relationship between plants and people and the developing world, um, in almost every instance, what they are trying to do is try to um, encourage the retention of uh, this knowledge of nature that has been passed on and accrued for generations and generations, um, that um, we're, we're, we're trying to encourage um, young people to continue to assimilate this knowledge because we believe it's going to be super important in the future. Um, in many, many instances, um, we and also aid agencies and, and, and governments um, are uh, identifying that a lot of not just the medicinal plants, but a lot of the other useful species in tropical and subtropical landscapes that have been exploited um, as subsistence articles um, for forever, um, that they have all kinds of values outside of the immediate community. 
Um, we refer to these as non-timber forest products. And um, these products um, have become very, very important, um, both at the national and the international trade level. And so as we're seeking ways to enhance the lives and livelihoods of, of people in the tropical realm, um, one of the strategies is to identify um, where there are markets for these plants, um, uh, to a lesser extent animals for obvious reasons, um, where there are markets for them, um, and, and then most importantly, um, how to um, help local people to learn to exploit these plants on a sustainable basis. Um, obviously, you know, when, when the, the, the market was simply local for whether it was a fiber or a medicine or a fuel or whatever, um, sustainability wasn't an issue. But there are definitely some plants out there. I'm working with a plant in um, Southeast Africa, um, the pepper bark tree that's been exploited to death um, because it is so widely perceived as a healing um, plant throughout much of su- Southern Africa. And it's been uh, on the international um, market for you know the last 30 years or so. And in some countries, it's been driven to extinction. Um, so I think at this point, the real focus of ethnobotany is not to develop new products that can help us in the developed world. Um, the focus is coming up with ways to transition the knowledge of nature in the tropical realm hmm. to help the people that it's, are there. Uh, it's well put. Uh, so that covers most of what I wanted to ask you about the book. Is there anything I've missed? Anything you want to make sure is here on this interview about your book that uh, I may have not thought to ask? Hmm. Uh, well, no. I mean, the, the, from you know, I think that any time you you get into an endeavor and it grows, and the book obviously grew in directions. I mean, some of that I'd done research in, and I was very familiar with the literature, and some of it was completely new to me. Um, and the very last chapter on kind of the development of these destructive destruction um, narratives um, in environmental science, that was a really, really interesting, exciting area to me. Um, but it was also very disheartening to find that, um, that we have been constructing these kinds of narratives in the world of environmental problems for a long time, but that they almost always had the outcome of blaming local people um, for bigger problems. Um, and so that ultimately justifying us moving in with our managerial expertise, um, or in the case of East Africa, you know, people are the problem with wildlife. Um, so let's move them out of these protected areas so that, um, ecotourists and wildlife tourists can come in. Um, I found that very, very disheartening and it was new to me. Um, the other thing that I find that I found interesting about just the whole idea of narratives and um, environmental science, uh, and the fact that environmental problems tend to develop so slowly and quietly, and the disconnect between cause and effect is so great um, that narratives are a great way to go about transitioning the arcane world of science and scientists to the general public. Um, and there are a lot of people in the scientific community now are talking about this because we need to get the word out there. Obviously, climate change is way up there at the top of it. Um, it is a great way to parlay what we're learning, um, but publishing in arcane journals um, out to the public. But at the same time, we need to be careful with it. Um, you know, you can only scream, you know, the world's about to go to Armageddon too many times and have it not happen before people stop believing you. 
So this, this, this book was certainly, there were parts of it that I was pretty familiar with, but it was very much of a learning experience and almost autobiographical in a way, because I honestly, I went to Brazil. I used to work for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the Endangered Species Office. And when I found out about the destruction of the rainforests, I quit my job and went back to graduate school to save them. Um, and what I've learned is there are certainly problems there, but they don't necessarily just wow. need outsiders. Well, well, great. So w- what's your next project? What's your next book length project? Well, the next book, the project I'm working on right now is with a, with a colleague at the New York Botanical Garden. And we're, um, we're actually not looking at medicine this time. We're looking at foods and we're looking at the, um, movement of green, sounds a little arcane, but green leafy vegetables, uh, over the course of the slave trade that moved from Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, to the to the tropical America, um, we're looking at it as part of the, a bigger theme of green vegetables in Africa, um, because uh, it's a topic that doesn't get very much publicity. And in terms of the nutritional interests and needs of of many many African people, these are crucial resources. Um, there's over a thousand species of wild and partially cultivated plants that the leaves or the immature um, fruit pods um, are cooked into stews and soups and all and eaten raw. And um, they're absolutely chock-a-block with phytonutrients and they are super, super important, you know, especially for women and children. And so um, I'm kind of moving into the area of um, these green vegetables. Um, and I was interested because I've been working in Brazil on and off for years that I wanted to see how much of them managed to survive um, over the course of the slave trade. But um, ultimately, next book length manuscript is going to be looking at sacred foods. Um, the provisional title is Dining with God, but we'll see how that evolves. <laughs> well, I look forward to that. Um, well, thank you so much for your time and uh, look forward to seeing your new work. Thank you, Lance. It was really nice talking to you. 